0: Hi, and welcome to the most recent episode of Towards Stockholm 50. This podcast is part of a short series produced to mark Mm -hmm. Stockholm Plus 50, 50 years since the Stockholm Conference of 1972. Each episode interviews an expert in environmental policy and diplomacy about how we can collectively achieve the implementation of environmental policies and build a greener and fairer future. I'm here today with Professor Daniel McGraw, the Senior Fellow at the Foreign Policy Institute of the John Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. So, hi Dan, thanks for joining us today.
1: Thank you, Cass. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: And do you mind kicking off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your background?
1: Well, as as Cass said, my name is Dan McGraw. I'm a professor currently. I've also worked in government Uh, And in private industry, I've worked in developing countries, and uh, in all of those, the question of environmental rights, uh, human rights, and environmental justice, which is the topic that I am uh, working on uh, leading up to Stockholm 50, have been important.
0: Thank you. And you're going to be speaking at one of our upcoming webinars uh, about environmental rights, human rights, and environmental justice. So I've got a couple of questions today to give a bit of a snapshot into what we're going to be talking about at those webinars. And the first one, what is the relationship between human rights and the environment? And what rights are most challenged by the degrading environment?
1: On October 8th, the UN Human Rights Council for the first time recognized uh, the right to a clean, healthy, and sustainable environment. Uh, the vote was uh remarkably positive. It was 43 in favor, no opposed, and four abstentions. This was based on a long and arduous set of of uh, efforts by many, many people, including most recently two special rapporteurs on human rights and environment, John Knox and David Boyd. And David's the current uh, special rapporteur. And that process involved a lot of uh, scholarship, of course, and also Uh, A lot of litigation in the three different uh, human rights regional regimes and in the Human Rights Committee at the global level. Uh, The relationship, it's now clear, is reciprocal. The two areas, human rights and environment, are interdependent. Uh, A vast array of human rights, uh, the realization of these, depends on a healthy environment. And I'll come back to which of those um, are implicated um, and reciprocally, uh, the protection of the environment requires the exercise of human rights—the right to free expression, free opinion, assembly, association. Uh, if these don't happen, then governments don't uh, behave well in terms of the environment. Um, the the um, it, it's clear that almost all substantive rights are implicated by. Uh, Uh, by uh, environmental harm, the right to life, the right to health, the right to enjoy culture, uh, the right to uh, own uh, property and use property, uh, the right to an adequate standard of living. This can be seen very clearly in the situation of the Inuit. Uh, The Arctic is heating uh, twice as fast as the rest of the continent, the rest of the globe because of climate change and uh, virtually all of their human rights are are endangered. Um, so it, it's it's clear that, that that's a very, very serious kind of relationship and that it's uh, compre- comprehensive. Um, the topic that I'm dealing with for Stockholm Post 50 also deals with uh, possible rights of nature and of other species. In fact, what we're trying to do is to look into the future. We're trying to imagine and illuminate the future with respect to the next 50 years. We did not know what kinds of environmental issues and even human rights issues, therefore, would arise in 1972. And we don't know what kinds of issues will arise in the next 50 years. So we've uh, commissioned, for no cost, a number of essays by experts looking at issues uh, like the Anthropocene, uh, rights of nature, um, what to do in conflict, what kinds of issues will arise from information and communications technology and uh, fungi, which are are not uh, sufficiently appreciated in the international uh, legal system and plastics.
0: Brilliant, thank you. And my next question is, How would you rate the agreement on curbing plastic pollution, which was just agreed at UNEA 5.2? And do you see any hope of making this into a convention or a multilateral environmental agreement?
1: As I indicated, uh, plastics are very important. They uh, raise all sorts of issues. It's thought that uh, by 2050, there'll be more plastics in the ocean than fish. uh, If we continue as we're going. People are uh, exposed to pollution from plastics in their homes, and all of our food and drinking water contains microplastics, which are not healthy for us. So it's a very important issue. Uh, We don't know how the convention will come out yet. It was agreed that there would be a convention uh, at UNEA, but the devil will be in the details. Uh, A bad sign is we could not get the word chemicals into the resolution. Uh, A better sign is that we did get the word design, so we think we can use that as a hook to think about what goes into these plastics. But really, we don't know yet. I think there will be a treaty. How good it will be is up to uh, the negotiators and a lot to civil society to put pressure on the negotiators to come through.
0: Thank you. And to follow up on something that you were touching on earlier, some groups are far more impacted by environmental degradation than others. But what does environmental justice look like in practice?
1: To achieve environmental justice, there are several elements. Uh, One is that no particular group should bear a disproportionate impact of uh, environmental harm. A second is that uh, all groups should have equal equal and meaningful opportunity to participate in decision making. Another element is that all groups should have access to um, an equal access to environmental amenities like clean drinking water and a final element is that the environment actually has to be healthy because we can't have justice if that doesn't exist. Now the the particulars of environmental injustice vary by society. In the United States it has a lot to do with race. Um, there's evidence that, um, regardless of the income level, uh, people who are African Americans are more likely to live in areas that are impacted by environmental harm. Uh, there's also evidence here in the United States that poverty and income level can make a difference. In other countries, um, the, the the pressures that cause environmental injustice uh, differ. In India, it may have more to do with castes. In Sri Lanka, it may have more to do with ethnic divisions, etc. So it depends on the society. And it's a it's a real problem, and the elites are not anxious to solve it. I think.
0: That leads me on actually directly to my next question, which is how can the UN and the member states help us get to that point?
1: And by that point, I assume you mean environmental justice?
0: Yes. <laughs> if that can be described as a point. Yeah,
1: both international organizations and uh, national and local uh, organizations, domestic organizations have roles to play. And uh, if we just take a step back right now, what we're seeing is that uh, we're beset by uh, really very difficult environmental uh, threats. There's the loss of biological diversity, climate change, toxification of the planet and water scarcity. Each of these is harming societies and individuals and communities around the world. They're interdependent, of course, um, and both in terms of their causes and their solutions and their impacts. What we need to have is a very concerted effort across that whole spectrum of issues. Intergovernmental organizations can make a difference by helping with research, by organizing efforts, by raising funds and allocating funds to deal with these issues. And similar kinds of things can be done at local levels, uh, often with with, uh, input about what matters in that locality, which of course is an important part of sustainable development. An example would be the 1996 agreement to remove lead from gasoline. It took us two years at UNEP to overcome some countries uh, resistance to having a work program uh, and resources developed or allocated to uh, removing lead from gasoline at UNEP. It then took until two years ago to finally remove lead from gasoline in the last country, in Algeria. So it took all of those years to do it. It was a concerted effort by thousands of people. Um, UNEP was very important, particular governments were also very important by providing expertise and funds. Uh, So all of that is is, is important to coordinate and, and get action at each of those levels And I want to repeat again that civil society is absolutely critical to all of that. Uh, It won't happen if we don't get pressure from below.
0: Brilliant. Thank you so much. That was actually my last question and all that we have time for today. But this discussion is just a preview of what we're going to be talking about in your upcoming webinar, which is happening on Thursday, the 28th of April at 4 p.m. Central European time. And if anyone listening to this... Uh, is interested in hearing more, then I do encourage you to go onto our website to find out details about the webinars, both this one and the other ones that we have in store, and find the registration details. Our website is towards.com50.org, and you can also find the details on our Twitter at stakeholders. So I want to thank you, Dan, for taking the time to talk to me today.
1: It's been a pleasure, Cass. Thank you.
0: And I look forward to hearing you again on the 28th. And thank you everyone for listening today. I hope you have a lovely day.